few minutes to do this is because what we're going to be talking about tonight really is what you just displayed for us, and that is the power of the gospel and how the gospel is shared and how the gospel spreads. And so many of you, in giving your own personal testimony, told us tonight about an individual who was instrumental whether it's a Sunday school teacher, or RA leader, or somebody else, uh, your parents, or whoever it may be. So somebody was instrumental, uh, not for all of you, but for a lot of you, maybe for most of you, that's part of your story, that not only the power of the gospel, but uh, the person that God used to help you understand the gospel. And that really kind of is at the heart of the book we're going to look at tonight. So tonight, what we're going to be talking about is the book of Romans. So we go from one of the hardest books in the Old Testament this morning, Ecclesiastes, to one of the hardest books in the New Testament, uh, the book of Romans. And they're not hard because they're intended to be difficult. They're hard because they're so rich with theology, so rich for the things of God. And and so they're a challenge for us, but that's that's a, a good thing. Now... Probably second to Jesus, Paul is the most influential Christian in the New Testament generation. I doubt that there would be much debate about that. But I would also say that Paul is probably one of the most influential Christians of all time. And I think, as I try to think through this, why was Paul so instrumental? Why was he so influential? Uh, You could boil it down to two things that Paul did. And they both had to do with the gospel his missionary journeys, and the letters that he wrote. Those are the two things that left an imprint on people. His missionary journeys, traveling from place to place, traveling all over the known world, sharing the gospel, and the letters that he wrote back to the people that that he had ministered to. Now, tonight as we look at Romans, this is going to be the first of three what's called Pauline epistles that we'll be studying this year. Uh, Lord willing... Uh, If we come to September, uh, we will be looking at the book of Ephesians, and in October, we'll study the book of Philippians. So tonight, we we begin kind of a new unit, if you will, uh, in this 10 books for 2019, as we begin talking about Pauline epistles. Now, of course, you know that the epistles are simply letters of correspondence. They're written by uh, one of Jesus' followers, and they were written either to a church or to individuals. There are 21 epistles in the New Testament, 21 letters, if you will. And you can break those 21 down to two categories. And you already know this, I'm sure most of you do. You break those 21 letters or epistles down to two categories. The Pauline epistles, that is the, the letters written by Paul, the letters of correspondence written by Paul, and the general epistles. And the general epistles are those uh, eight letters that were written by Peter, John, Jude, and James, and then, of course, the unknown author of Hebrews, which we could talk about what, who that is, but theoretically, or at least, uh, not theoretically, uh, well, he, he's unknown, and, and though I, I think it's Paul, but we won't go, I won't get into all of that. Um, now, Romans, of course, is a letter written to the church where? Where's that church located? Rome, of course. Now, the interesting thing about this letter, before we jump into it, the interesting thing about this letter is that Paul never went to Rome. This letter is an exception to all the other Pauline epistles. Paul had a connection to the people that he wrote to when, 
uh, when he wrote to individuals like Timothy or Titus or Philemon. He uh, had a, a personal relationship with that individual and time invested with that individual. And of course, when he wrote to churches like the church at Corinth or the, or the church at Ephesus or the churches of Galatia, Paul had connections with those people. He had connections with those churches. He, in many of those situations, had been the church planter, if you will, the one who took the gospel to that area. He personally developed and discipled those people. So he had a real interaction with those people. But it's the interesting thing about this letter is that Paul had never been to Rome, so far as we know, and, and as you look at the text in the letter, it seems to indicate Paul had never been to Rome. But he did hope to travel there, and this letter simply was written to prepare the way for his visit. Now, I know that you, a lot of you bring your notebooks, and I'm going to try not to go too fast because I don't have an outline for you tonight, but i got a lot of material for you to write down. So if you hadn't gotten your notebook out yet, you might want to get that handy and get it ready and I'm going to give you a lot of stuff to write down tonight about the book of Romans. And here's what we're planning to do. Uh, tonight is going to be kind of the 30-foot level, overviewing the, the book of Romans. Next Sunday night, we're going to get more in detail about the book, what it's about and what it means. So, let's, let's kind of take the 30,000-foot level as we survey the book of Romans. First of all, this letter is more formal than Paul's other letters, and it sets forth the faith in a systematic way. And that was the first characteristic of this book I'd have you write down, that this letter is more formal than the other letters, like Philippians is a very informal letter. So it's more formal than all the other letters, and he sets out the faith in a very systematic way. He's not just writing, uh, like, like in Corinth, he's writing uh, about problems in the church. He's writing to address issues in the church. And, and it's a very personal letter, and, and it, it just kind of addresses, okay, now about this problem, now about that problem. Well, you wrote about this problem. Now, let me tell you about this. So in Corinth, it's very interactive, it's very personal, and it's very focused on addressing the problems that the people were having. But, but Romans is very different. Romans is very formal, or at least more formal, and it's very systematic. Very systematic, and because of that, it's also the longest letter that Paul wrote. 16 chapters. Of course, when Paul originally wrote it, it wasn't in chapters, but, yeah, but for us, it's the longest letter, 16 chapters. Now, write this down as well. Paul wrote this letter as a seasoned minister and missionary 20 years deep in the faith. So this is a letter that he wrote towards the end of his ministry, if you will. 20 years into the ministry. 20 years deep into the faith. 20 years of walking with Jesus. 20 years and, and watching God work in, through his missionary journeys. So, so this letter, maybe, maybe, th this is shorter supposition, maybe one of the reasons this letter is so deep theologically is because Paul had spent 20 years walking with the Lord growing in his understanding of the gospel and God and all, what all of that means. So Romans, uh, if I could put it this way, Romans is not a light read by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, somebody told me just recently who's reading through Romans with us, uh, this person came up, she, she just simply said, Romans is hard. Uh, you're right, Romans is hard, very hard. It's not a light read. Um, but, but it's thick 
with theology. What I mean by theology, theology is simply the study of God. It's thick with theology. Now, we do have a video, I think. I, I didn't get to ask him tonight. Uh, yeah, we got, I think we got the thumbs up. We got the video. Uh, so this is kind of a long introduction to the video, but I wanted you to understand a little bit about the book before you even watch the video tonight. And the video is actually in two parts. So we'll watch part one tonight. We'll watch part two next Sunday night as we try to understand Romans. So let's watch this together. About eight minutes. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to a group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel. And he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with the risen Jesus, who commissioned him as an apostle, like an official representative, to the world of non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible. And so he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire telling people about the risen King Jesus and forming his followers then into these new communities called churches. And Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities to help them foster their faith or answer questions. And the book of Romans is one of these. It was actually written quite late in his career. Now, we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, that it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return. And when they did, they found a church that had become very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And so this created lots of tension. So that by Paul's day, the Roman church was was divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided church to become unified and for a practical purpose. He was hoping that the Roman church could become a staging ground for his mission to go even further west all the way to Spain. And so these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, the letter is designed to have four main movements, but it's unified as one long-flowing exploration of the gospel. The gospel, Paul says, first of all, reveals God's righteousness, and then it also creates a new humanity, which fulfills God's promise to Israel. And so it's this gospel that's going to unify the church. In this video, we're just going to explore the ideas in chapters 1 through 4. So Paul opens by introducing himself as an apostle appointed by God to spread the gospel about Jesus, how he's the Messiah of Israel who was raised from the dead as the Son of God, King of the nations. And Jesus now calls all humanity to come under his loving rule. And Paul says this good news about King Jesus is, first of all, God's power to save people who trust in him, and second, that it reveals God's righteousness. Now, Righteousness is a rich Old Testament word for Paul. It describes God's character, that he always does justice, what is right and what is good, but also that he is faithful and just to fulfill his promises. And Paul's saying that the story of Jesus shows how God has done both of these things. How? 
Well, he goes first into a long creative retelling of Genesis chapters 3 through 11. He shows how all the Gentile world, all the nations, have become trapped in the spiral of sin and selfishness. The human heart and mind are broken, Paul says. We've turned away from God to embrace idolatry, which means finding ultimate significance in created things and then giving ultimate allegiance to these things that are not God. This results in a distortion of our humanity and destructive behavior. And so what's left is a humanity that stands guilty as charged before a just and righteous God. To which the people of Israel might say, well, it's a good thing then that God chose our people out from among the nations. He saved us out of slavery in Egypt. He gave us the laws of the Torah, like the Sabbath and eating kosher and circumcision. And these all together show us how to live as God's holy people. But, Paul says, not so fast. He recalls the storyline of the Torah and of the rest of the Old Testament, which shows that Israel was just as sinful and idolatrous and morally broken as the rest of humanity. Israel is actually more guilty than the Gentiles, Paul says, because they have the Torah. They should know better. And so, Paul concludes, all humanity, Gentiles, Israelites, are hopelessly trapped and guilty before God. But that is not the final word. The good news about Jesus is God's response. Instead of holding humanity guilty, Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for sins. As our representative, Jesus took into himself all of the just consequences of the pain, the sin, and the death that we have caused in the world. And he overcame it all by his resurrection from the dead. It's his new resurrection life that he makes available to others. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. And all of this, Paul says, is how God justifies those who trust or have faith in Jesus. Now, justification is another rich Old Testament term for Paul, and it's related to God's righteousness. It literally means to declare righteous. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we are given a new status before God. Instead of finding us guilty, God declares that a person is in a right relationship with him and is forgiven. Justification results in a new family. The person who trusts in Jesus is given a place among God's covenant people. Justification also results in a new future, which begins a journey of life transformation by God's grace. And so all of these things about justification are God's gift to those who through their faith are in Christ. And so this leads Paul in chapter 4 to explore the huge implications that all of this has for who can be a part of God's covenant family. He goes back to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Before any of the laws of the Torah were given to Israel, Abraham was justified or declared righteous before God. How? Well, God promised that Abraham would become a father of a large multi-ethnic family that would receive God's blessing. But he and his wife Sarah, they were really old. They had never been able to have children. But nonetheless, Abraham had radical faith and trust in God's promise. And so God declared him to be righteous. And so Paul says, now Abraham has become the father of God's new covenant family, and it's spreading all around the world. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles who have the same kind of faith and trust in the one who fulfilled God's promise to Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. So let's pause and summarize Paul's main ideas here in chapters 1 through 4 because they're the foundation for understanding the rest of the letter. All humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. 
That rescue, however, is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create that multi-ethnic family of Abraham based on faith as his own new covenant people. And so Paul's going to go on to show how this new family is a part of something much, much bigger that calls them to a whole new way of life together. But it's all going to be rooted in these core ideas explored in chapters 1 through 4 of Paul's letter to the Romans. Well, that's a lot to comprehend just for four chapters, isn't it? Now, here's I want to do five things tonight in the last uh, 28, 29 minutes that we have. I want to talk about five different things related to the book of Romans. Again, I know a lot of you are taking notes, so I'll kind of give you a, a framework here. I want to talk about, first of all, the, the church at Rome. And you don't have to write all this down yet, but I'm going to talk about the church at Rome. Then I'm going to talk about the occasion for the letter. Then I'm going to talk about a question about chapter 16. Then we're going to kind of do a summary of the contents of the letter and then give you some advice for reading Romans. So that's kind of our plan for the rest of the evening. So first of all, let me talk to you about, number one, the church at Rome. We'll talk about the church, and then we'll talk about the letter, okay? It's interesting that, that more than likely both Paul and Peter were martyred in Rome. And yet, it's unlikely that either one of those men had anything to do with the start of the church in Rome. So scholars have kind of scratched their heads thinking, uh, how did this church get started? I mean, this is the church in the capital city of Rome. You know, the, the capital, the, the, the empire of Rome. This, this is a church in, in, how did that get started there? If it wasn't Paul, if it wasn't Peter, how did it get started? There's, there's two possibilities, maybe more than two, but these are the two prominent possibilities. I think the first and most likely possibility is that some believe that uh, there were those who were converted on the day of Pentecost and they carried the gospel back to Rome. Let me show you this in the text or in the scripture. Uh, go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In the days of the New Testament, there were thousands of Jews, apparently, who lived in Rome. And they would travel back to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts that the Jews would go to Jerusalem for. One of those annual feasts was the Feast of Weeks, W-E-E-K-S, the Feast of Weeks. Some of them, as they went back for the Feast of Weeks, were in the area where Pentecost occurred, where the Holy Spirit came into the lives of the believers and so in Acts chapter 2, that's the story of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming to live within the believers. And it's interesting that we find out in verse 10, some of the different people who were there. Uh, let's start in verse 8. Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthenians, Medes, and all these other people. Skip down to verse 10. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome both Jews and converts to Judaism. So there were Jews there in Jerusalem at the, when Pentecost occurred, Jews from Rome, and, and probably at Pentecost, they placed their faith in Christ 
and then carried the gospel back to the capital city, carried the gospel back to their family and their friends. Uh, another possibility, here's the second possibility of how did the church even get started in Rome. Another possibility is that some of the converts of Paul's ministry or Peter's ministry or one of the other apostles, but, but especially Paul, that one or more of the converts carried the gospel there. In other words, perhaps somebody was saved in Greece. Somebody was saved in Corinth, perhaps. And, and they had this missionary heart to take the gospel to other places. And though Paul didn't get to go to Rome, perhaps they went to Rome and they carried the gospel there, shared the gospel, started a church. Uh, I think it's pretty interesting. We don't know who it was. Nameless, faceless people who carried the gospel to where it had never been, and, the, and a, a community of believers were, was formed there in Rome. You know, that's how God most of the time does His work, isn't it? Nameless, faceless people that the rest of the world wouldn't recognize, and yet churches are started, Christians are saved, churches are started by people who penetrate the world with the gospel. And so that's the church at Rome. Let me talk to you secondly about the occasion of the letter. That is, why was this letter even written? If Paul had never been there, why was he writing them a letter? Well, Paul was anxious to minister in this church because this church, though he didn't start it, was widely known across the world. Interesting. This church in Rome was widely known across the world. Uh, so go with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Huh. Your faith has been reported all over the world. People all over the world are talking about you. They're talking about what God's doing in your midst. They're talking about this congregation. And so go on through chapter 1. We don't have time to read it all, but skip down to verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I, that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, and that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. So Paul says, listen, I just want you to know that that I'm really anxious to come there. I've, I've heard about you guys. In fact, people all over the world are talking about you. And I have a personal desire. I'm eager to travel there and to see for myself what God's been doing. I, I want to come to Rome and I hope to come to Rome. So Paul wrote this letter to prepare the way for his visit. Go towards the end of the book, all the way to chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Paul tells us essentially why he writes his book and how he hopes this book will help prepare the way for his visit. Uh, Romans chapter 15, beginning verse 14 through verse 33. I'll skip some as we're reading. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. I have written you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, 
because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God and is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus uh, in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. And then skip on down for a second time. Verse 20, it has always been my ambition, this is underlined in my Bible, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Skip on down, verse 23. But now that these... But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, not many weeks or many months, Paul said, I've been longing for how long? Now, let me let's stop here for a moment. Paul is saying, you know what? There's not, a whole lot, there's not a whole lot of places here in the Mediterranean area that I haven't been to. That's what he's talking about in this text. I mean, you name it, I've been to those places. I've, I've covered a lot of territory. And so now he's saying, I, you know, I, I, I don't have a whole lot left to do here, and I'm hoping to take the gospel westward. I'm hoping to take the gospel beyond even Rome all the way to Spain. I've taken the gospel to Corinth, and I've taken it to, to Laodicea, and I've taken it here and there and all over this Mediterranean area, but my desire now because I've kind of covered that territory. My desire now is to take the gospel as far as Spain. L let me show you this in the text. It, it's so interesting. What His heart for the nations. Verse 23. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in service of the saints there for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. That is, I, I'm on my way now. I'm going to Jerusalem, but I plan to go to Spain eventually. And when I go to Spain, I'm going to stop and see you along the way. Skip down to verse 28. So after I've completed this task, that is taking the money to the saints in Jerusalem, and I've made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. So that, that was the occasion for Paul's letter. He's preparing them for his eventual visit to see them. Now, I, I know i got a lot of Bible scholars here. Did Paul ever make it to Jerusalem? I mean, did Paul ever make it to Rome? Not as a preacher, but as a prisoner. Here's what happened. You can read it in the book of Acts, Acts 27 and Acts 28. When Paul took the money that he had gathered from these churches, they, they had a heart to help the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And, and so Paul took this love offering to the people in Jerusalem. And while he was in Jerusalem, he got in trouble with Jewish leaders. They were, they were jealous of, of what he was doing. And they arrested him. He spent some time in prison in Jerusalem. And then they transferred him to Caesarea. And he spent two years in Caesarea in prison. Acts 27, Acts 28. Read about it. The two years that he spent in prison in, in Caesarea. He finally appeals to Caesar. 
As a Roman citizen, he could appeal to Caesar. And so in Acts chapter 27, Acts 28, they decide to put him on a ship and send him to Rome. So he made it to Rome, but not as a preacher. He made it to Rome as a prisoner. And the Bible uh, doesn't quite tell us exactly how this unfolded, but more than likely, after some time there in Rome under house arrest, more than likely, he was set free, went on another missionary journey, was arrested again, brought back to Rome again, this time in prison in the what's called the Mamertine prison, and then was executed. Now, how, how does that relate to the book of Romans? Paul said, it's my heart's desire, it's my, my plan to take the gospel all the way to Spain. And I hope to stop in Rome along the way. Have, have you noticed that, and, and I know some of you have noticed because, and I don't try to make a big deal out of this, but have you noticed that when I'm talking about the future, I'll say, if the Lord wills, Lord willing. You know where I get that? Where do I get that? James. He says, you don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. And you shouldn't plan that you're going to do this, and then tomorrow you're going to do that, and then the next day you'll do this. He said, you don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. You need to say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this. And so, I, you know, I just try to live that out. Paul had a plan, didn't he? His plan was to take the gospel all the way to Spain and to stop in Rome along the way. God had a different plan. God had a different plan. Like, Paul, you're not going to quite going to make it to Spain. You will make it to Rome. And you'll have a pulpit, but your pulpit will be chained to a Roman guard. While you're chained to a Roman guard, I've got a plan bigger than your plan. Because when you're chained to a Roman guard, what's actually going to happen is the gospel is going to penetrate Caesar's household. The gospel is going to penetrate Caesar's army. You want to take the gospel to Spain, I want you to take the gospel to Caesar's household. And so sometimes we have to in life say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this. But if not, he's got a better plan. Amen? Now, um, so that was the occasion for the letter. Let me talk quickly about the question about chapter 16. Chapter 16 on the, the heading of your Bible. If you have little headings, of chapter headings, what does the headings, chapter heading say in your Bible? Mm-hmm. I thought it'd never been there. How, do you, how are you going to greet people you've never been to, you've never met? In fact, if you start, if we, if we took the time, I'd say, okay, ready, set, go. How many people did he greet? I'll go ahead and give you the answer. 26. Anybody see a problem with this? If you've never been to Rome, how do you know 26 people in Rome? I mean, this is not in the days of Facebook. How do you know 26? How can you greet 26 people by name? You've never even been to Rome or that church. How did he know all of those people? Well, 
If you start looking at, first of all, we don't know for sure the answer to all of that, but if you start looking at that list of people, it's interesting that he was related to some of them. He had some relatives in Rome. A few of them he was related to. He had worked with some of them, like Aquila and Priscilla. He had worked with some of them in other places, and now they're living in Rome. And then there's a whole section of people, we just don't know how he, he met them, perhaps on other missionary journeys in other places. We, we really don't know how. But I want to give you two lessons about this. I, I, I really, I think there's a, there's a sermon here, but I'm not going to try to preach a sermon. But two lessons about uh, Romans chapter 16. And this maybe won't mean anything to you, but me as a pastor, it means a lot. Here's the first lesson. Ministry is about relationships. You see, if you, if you look at history, if you look at the Bible, and if you just look at history, the servants that God used the most were people who could make friends. And this is very simple, it's very practical, but I want to tell you something. It's hard to minister to people if you don't like people. Right? So if you want to have any kind of ministry at all, if you want to do, and I'm not talking necessarily about vocational ministry, though it, it certainly includes that, but if you, if you want to have any kind of a ministry in your BSF class, if you want to have a ministry at work where you just kind of reach out to people, you've got to like people. I know this is simple. I know it for some of you say, what is he talking about? But it's, it's, God thought it was so important that the last chapter of this letter, 26 people are mentioned by name. It's, it's no accident that the last chapter of this letter, Paul is talking about the, his friends, the people that he knows. You know as well as I do, the people that are most effective in, in ministry are the people who actually act like they like you. Right? Well, let me, let me go on. I don't want to get caught up on that. It, it just blessed me to think about. Here's the second lesson from chapter 16. Second lesson from chapter 16 is this. We need each other. You see, the Bible says we're sheep. And did you know that sheep flock together? One commentator I read, he said, Paul was a friend maker as well as a soul winner. I like that. Paul was a friend maker as well as a soul winner. Now, that's just a question about Acts or Romans chapter 16. Like, how does he know all of these people? And let me just give you a couple of examples, then we'll move on. I don't want to belabor the point, but me as a minister, when I see how he ends this letter and the many relationships that he had, and he called people by name. Do you have problems remembering names? Oh my goodness, I do. And so when, when I read this and I see all the people he mentioned by name, it's like, I don't know if I could do that. You know? And so it just showed me the importance of ministry and the importance of having a relationship with people, the, the importance of ministering to people. Uh, look what he says, chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sincrea, and I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need for, from you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. Phoebe is probably the one, when Paul wrote this letter called Romans in Corinth around AD 57, 
uh, he didn't put it in the U.S. Postal Service. He didn't send it by uh, FedEx. In that day, when he writes a letter in Corinth and it needs to get to Rome, he hands it to somebody. They carry it there. Phoebe, more than likely, carried it this letter to the church at Rome. And that's why he says, I commend to you the servant named Phoebe. And then he says, verse 3, Greet Priscilla and Aquila. And then what does he call them? My fellow workers in Christ Jesus. So this is, he has a relationship with these people. And look what he says. They risked their lives for me. See, that, that's why I'm talking about this idea of we need each other. We, we need friends and relationships. Verse 5, greet also the church that meets at their house. You, you know how the gospel's going forth? Because they're having this, these church meetings in their home. Look at verse 6, greet Mary who worked very hard for you. Some of these people didn't work hard for Paul, they worked hard for them. Just trying to cut some things out. Verse 7. Greet. How would you say that next word? That next name? Andronicus. Janias. My relative. So he's related to these people who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles. They were in Christ before I was. They knew the Lord before I did, he said. And so the list goes on and on and on. Uh, look at verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And his mother, who has been a mother to me also. I love that. I underline that in my Bible. Greet his mother, who's been a mother to me too. Uh, I don't know why. I just feel the need to, to say to all of us, you know what? It's about relationships. Ministry is about relationships. And the gospel moves on the tracks of relationships. All right, I, I, I've, I'll move on. Let me, let me talk to you real quickly about the contents of this letter. And, and of course, I'm running out of time. The contents of the letter. Uh, as they said on the video, the theme of the epistle is the righteousness of God. Chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. The righteousness of God. This is the theme of the entire book. Chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew, then for the Gentile. And watch this, verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness, watch this, from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by what, church? By faith. From first to last. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. So that's the theme, this, this righteousness that comes from God and this righteousness that becomes ours by faith. That's the theme of the whole letter. Uh, I don't have time to dig into this, but let me give you nine different other doctrines that are listed or, or discussed in the book of Romans, and you can go back and read them for yourself. Uh, I just want to take time to read them. Uh, but some, some of the basic Christian doctrines that you'll discover in this book are these. There's nine of them. Number one, natural revelation. Natural revelation, chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Natural revelation is simply God revealing himself through nature. And when you look at nature, you see God. That's natural revelation. Uh, number two, the universality of sin, 
chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, that sin is a problem for everyone, the universality of sin. Number three, justification by faith. Uh, chapter 4 really digs into this concept of being made right with God by faith. Uh, number four is original sin. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 20. Original sin, that is the sin problem that we have started with Adam. Original sin, and it was, it's passed down through one man, he says. Sin entered the world, and through one man, righteousness is also made possible and available to us. Concept of original sin. Number five, our relationship with Christ. He talks about the importance of being in Christ Jesus. And that's uh, chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. And then... Uh, the, another doctrine is the role of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, he talks about that really you can't live this righteous life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. Romans chapter 8, the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then number 7, the election and rejection of Israel. Romans chapter 9 through 11. Very difficult section of Scripture. Probably the, the most difficult section in the book. Chapters 9 through 11. The concept of election and rejection of Israel. And then one that I like, number eight, the reason I like this because I studied it in seminary when I was doing my doctoral work, spiritual gifts. Paul talks about spiritual gifts, Romans chapter 12. He digs into this concept that we're all gifted by the Spirit of God who lives within us. We're all gifted to serve the body of Christ. And actually, let me just go ahead and give you this commercial. That's what we're going to be studying this fall on Wednesday nights is spiritual gifts. We're going to dig into that. And then number nine, the ninth doctrine is respect for government and those in authority. Romans chapter 13. That they are appointed by God, that even those that you don't like are appointed by God, and you have the duty to respect them and pray for them. And it doesn't matter what, what I started to say denomination, it doesn't matter what um, political party it doesn't matter what political party they are. You are to respect uh, the government and those in authority. They are placed by God. All right, so. Advice for reading Romans. Here we go. Advice for reading Romans. Number one, try to keep the big picture in mind. Because here's what happens when you start reading in Romans. If you're not careful, you'll get bogged down in the, in the bits of detail. And you'll have a hundred questions that you're trying to answer. And you'll miss the big story. So in Romans, it's okay to uh, look at those details and ask the questions. But don't do it at the expense of understanding the big story. And so let me walk you through the big story. And I'm going to just give you this. You can write it down. And, and then we'll... we'll uh, will be done for the night. Here's a, a walk through Romans. Here's the big story. And here's what I encourage you to do. Take the notes I'm about to give you, lay it beside your Bible, and as you're reading through Romans and you're trying to understand, you, you start to get bogged down in the details. Say, oh yeah, I need to look at the big story. How does this apply to the big story? Okay? So here's a walk through Romans. Here's the big story. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 is the salutation, the greeting. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, is the greeting or salutation. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, is thanksgiving and prayer. 
Paul talks about how thankful he is for the people in Rome, the brothers in Rome, and he prays for them. Chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. Chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 is the, the thesis of the book. And we've already read that. Justification by this righteousness of God by faith. The thesis of the book is stated. Chapter 1, 16 through 17. Then chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 5, verse 11. I'll say that again. 118 through 511, part 1 is, he talks about sin, the law, Christ, and faith. There's going to be four parts to this thing. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 5, verse 11, part 1, sin, the law, Christ, and faith. Those are the major subjects he, he addresses. Then in chapter 5, verse 12, through chapter 8, verse 39, I'll say that again, chapter 5, verse 12, through chapter 8, verse 39, part 2, sin, Christ, the law, and the Spirit. Addressing them again, and this is why you need to see the big picture, because you'll get confused. Wait a minute, didn't he talk about this already? And so you need to see the big picture to try to keep everything together. So, uh, part two, sin, Christ, the law, and the Spirit. Chapter 9, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 36, part three, is God's faithfulness and Jewish unfaithfulness. God's faithfulness and the Jews' unfaithfulness. Part three, chapter 9 through chapter 11, essentially. Chapter 12, verse 1. Through chapter 15, verse 13 is part 4. The practical outworking of God's righteousness. Chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 13. Part 4, the practical outworking of God's righteousness. What does it mean to live like a Christian? How, what does that look like? The practical outworking of God's righteousness. Chapter 15, verse 14 through chapter 16, verse 27 simply the concluding matters he, he just kind of the end of the book where he concludes and has the greetings to all those people and all those kind of things all right 15 14 through 16 27 concluding matters if you will walk through Romans using that as your guide it will help you to understand some of the questions that will come up uh, as you're reading through don't get lost in the and get bogged down with the details and the questions, and miss the big story, all right? Lots to still talk about. I hope you'll be back next week. We'll have another video, and we'll try to really try to get our hands around flying down closer now to the real issues in the book, okay? Father, thank you for, for your word. Thank you for the truth that is there. Grasp or Help us to grasp the truth before us by the power of the Holy Spirit. May he be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.